Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me, as always, this week is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterford Securities. It's the end of July. We've staggered to the end of July, Simon. All the big names are about to head off to their villas, or perhaps they aren't anymore because of the various restrictions that are going on around the world. But we carry on, relentless, and particularly who'd be an investment trust analyst in this kind of situation. There have been a whole flurry of results out this week. There's plenty to talk about. So we're going to crack right on by kicking off with asking you what happened in the market this week. It's been a bit of a tricky week uh, in the market this week. We've seen uh, a number of red days, so the market down. It's probably finished up about uh, the UK market, probably down 3%. Uh, The investment company sector fared a little bit better, but still down probably about 2.5%. And we've actually seen sectors, uh, the sector average discount, so the average discount across the whole investment trust sector, widened out a little bit, started probably about 5.9% for the week and widened out as the week went on, probably ending about 6, 6.5%. Well, there's been a lot in the media, obviously, about uh, some of the economic data coming out for the second quarter, which has been slightly worse than people expected, uh, unprecedentedly bad in terms of GDP for the UK and the US uh, because of the lockdown. And of course, there's the beginning to quite a lot of media coverage of a possible second wave kicking off in one or two countries. So a somewhat sort of gloomy backdrop, which might be something to do with that. Let's just look, though, who's been reporting in an investment trust world, things roll on as always, and we've seen a number of results this week. Uh, let's kick off with the global sector, one of the bigger sectors, investment trust sectors, where there's some very well-known names there. And why don't we start off with the daddy of them all, or the granddaddy of them all, which is uh, F&C, the first ever investment trust, started 1868 and still going strong. What have they been uh, saying this week, Simon? So they announced their interim results for the six-month period to the end of June, so basically the first half of 2020. Obviously, a very difficult uh, market backdrop, but a a credible performance. Their NFE total return was down slightly, uh, about 0.9%, and that lagged their benchmark a little bit, which was up 0.4%. But actually, it was the share price total return that was probably a bit more disappointing because they dropped 10% on a share price basis, uh, and that reflected the fact that they moved from a premium rating at the start of the year to an 8% discount. So that's probably of disappointment to shareholders, but the investment portfolio actually slightly outperformed. Uh, And I think uh, shareholders can probably take heart the fact that although net revenue per share was down 29% year on year, uh, the chairman uh, has stated that shareholders can still expect dividend uh, increases in respect of 2020, and that would represent its 50th consecutive year of increases. And that's because obviously, as do many investment trusts, it has substantial revenue reserves, probably equivalent to one year's dividend. And uh, one suspects the intention is to use those to uh, generate that dividend growth. You mentioned that it's gone to a discount. How has it been trading recently? But how does that 8% uh, compare to uh, how it's traded over the last year or indeed historically? Yeah, so I mean, the pattern for FNC Investment Trust over a number of years is to see its discount narrow. Uh, I mean, going back a, a number of years, it was quite active on its buyback program. Uh, and then more recently, it's seen uh, quite a pickup in demand as uh, reflecting its strong performance record. So its average discount over the last year or the last 12 months is probably about 4%. Uh, and during that time, as, as mentioned, it's been on a premium rating. It's, it's kind of touched a 2% premium but uh, did suffer a derating, as to be fair, did most investment trusts during that market sell-off. And it still hasn't recovered. It's still, as I say, around about a 9 10% discount at the moment. 
So that's F and C. Let's move on to another company in the global sector. This is a company we've talked about in the past called Saints, Scottish American. What can you tell us about what they've been saying this week? So Saints or Scottish American, they also had uh, interim results out and that was for the same period. So that was the six months to the end of June. A slightly stronger set of results. Their NAV total return was up just short of 2% and that represented a slight outperformance for the, the FTSE All World Index. This is one of the, the Bailey Gifford stable managed by uh, Toby Ross and James Dow, but they have a global equity income. So income is a very important part uh, of their mandate. Uh, what was quite interesting is that their revenue per share was, was down. I think that, that would probably be what you'd expect given this year, but it was only down 7%. So it was just their um, revenue per share was uh, 6.1p for the six-month period, and they declared a second interim dividend. So uh, you know, without kind of getting into the whole uh, dividend prediction business, you would say that they possibly are a better place, or they certainly are a better place than a number of their, their peers. And certainly the managers in their report were optimistic about the, the portfolio's long-term prospects for resilient income growth. How are they managing that trust? Is it significantly different from the way that F&C uh, manages its trust? Or are they just investing directly themselves? I mean, F&C has a regional approach, does it not? Is there any fundamental difference in the way they invest, or is it just that uh, the Saints guys have done slightly better this, over this period? Yeah, I mean, there will be a different approach. So the Saints guys, as you put it, um, they will have you know, a relatively concentrated portfolio, certainly by the standards of F&C Investment Trust, which is far more diversified, and F&C uh, include a number of third-party managers. So, for instance, their US exposure is managed by two managers, T. Rowe Price and Barahando, both very well-known investment managers, but with different styles, one's growth, one value. And the idea is that between them, you get a blended approach. Whereas uh, Saints, it's their portfolio. They pick all the stocks. Um, there is a degree of commonality with some of the other Bailey Gifford global funds, but actually because of their global equity income mandate, then you know income is, is a very important part of what they look for, which is not necessary and probably isn't the case for uh, you know, the monks and Scottish mortgage trusts of this world. So, no, they've got a very good long-term track record. And as I say, the, the revenue and therefore the dividend is a key, key part of that story. And, and that uh, particular investment trust is yielding just under 3% at the moment. Which I think compares with FNC, which is, I think, currently under 2%. Have I got that right? About one7 at the moment, yeah. Okay, well, Scottish America, another venerable investment trust, launched in 1873. So a good five years younger than FNC, but still going strong. The longevity is the feature of, of a number of investment trusts. Uh, they've survived through uh, two world wars and all sorts of other mishaps, including flu pandemics. Uh, let's move on to another one, which is, I think, quite popular. It's a, it's a global investment trust, but it has a slightly different approach, and that is Smithson. Quite popular with the retail investors because it was launched by uh, Terry Smith, whose Fundsmith uh, venture has done extraordinarily well in the open-ended universe. What have Smithson been saying and how does what they invest in differ from what the two we just mentioned invest in? So Smithson had interim results out this week and that was for the six-month period again to the end of June. Their NAV total return was up 15% in that period and that represented an outperformance. Now, this is, as you say, investing in global companies, global equities, but different to the two mentioned earlier in as much as they're focused on small and mid-cap companies. So just to put some numbers on that, they would invest down to companies with a market cap of about 500 million, which is reasonably small, but they would go up to 15 billion, which is actually quite large, certainly in UK terms. So they've got a degree of flexibility, um, but it's quite a concentrated portfolio, probably about 30, 31 investments. It's managed by a chap called 
Simon uh, Barnard. So Terry Smith is the uh, CIO of the enterprise. So and actually he's got some of his personal money uh, involved in this, but quite a concentrated portfolio. Uh, and as I said, in that kind of global mid and small cap names, which uh, have performed pretty well this year. I've noticed an interesting comment about that this week, fine enough from John Chatfield Roberts, who many will know is the uh, head of the multi-manager team at Jupiter, which is a leading company in both the closed-ended and the open-ended universe. They were asked in a Q&A, they were doing why they hadn't invested in Smithson, even though they're big fans of Terry Smith and the Fund Smith approach. And they said that they would have done, but because it's an investment trust and they're such a large uh, open-ended fund, they would be concerned about liquidity in the trust. In other words, if they wanted to exit their entire position, which would be, you know, several hundred million, then they would find that difficult. But they did say in passing that they thought that Smithson was a terrific uh, investment trust, and they thought that investment trusts in particular were very good, well-suited to retail investors. So it's quite encouraging to get that endorsement from uh, someone who's a very big name in the open-ended world. Let's move on and talk about another company, which is called Brunner. I'm not quite sure why it's called Brunner, but it is also in the same sector and I think managed by Allianz. Is that correct? That is correct. And in fact, by a chap called Matthew Tillett, who took over from Lucy McDonald earlier this year uh, following her departure from Allianz. But they had interim results out uh, this week uh, for the six month period to the end of May. And, you know, obviously a very more difficult time. NAV total return uh, down 6%, but actually only slightly behind their, their benchmark. And again, uh, you know, the, the dividend is an important aspect of this investment trust. And despite the fact they've seen a 33% decrease in earnings over that period, they, they have provided full year dividend guidance, which is just over 20p. So and that represents an increase on the financial year 2019. And, that, you know, funnily enough, they've got revenue reserves uh, to support them in achieving that goal. So, yes, yeah, so a change of manager there, but it doesn't seem as if there's been a particular change in the portfolio makeup. Matthew Tillett's been involved in that investment trust for, for a number of years. But I also noticed, I mean, that is trading on quite a significant discount. So somewhere across this sector, I mean, there's lots of potential opportunities in the, in the global sector. They've got trusts with different yields and with different uh, premium and discounts. Uh, is that something that is normal or do they all tend to trade on similar kinds of discounts? In other words, are we seeing something unusual at the moment? Well, if you look at the average discount over the kind of global sector, probably about 3% or so at the moment. But within that, uh, you know, you have funds such as Scottish Mortgage that people will be familiar with. It's uh, trading around NAV. You've got Monks trading on a bit of a premium. Uh, and then you've got funds on quite wide discounts. And, and Brunner certainly would fit that bill on a 14% discount, uh, yielding 2.7%. So I think it's one of those things where when an investment trust um, develops a strong track record and gets uh, a following, then their discount tends to tighten in. And, and that's certainly true for the Bailey Gifford uh, Investment Trust. They have performed very well. They have developed strong interest uh, across the marketplace uh, and their rating reflects that. So let's move back towards the UK. Those are some very big names in the global sector with quite divergent performance, I would say, given the nature of what they do. Let's move on to the UK and let's talk about a trust we have mentioned before, which is Lord Adventure, a somewhat unusual beast. So Lord Adventure had its interim results out this week, and that was again for the six month period to the end of June. NAV total return was down 16% or so in that period, and that compares with the, uh, the FTSE All Share, so the, UK, the broader UK market down 17.5%. So uh, kind of outperformed on a relative basis, but still down in absolute terms. 
Um, again, the dividend's an important part of this particular story. And they have uh, said that the 2020 dividend, so the dividend for the full year, will be at least equal to uh, the level of last year, so 2019's level, which was 26p uh, per share. And that means it's on a prospective 5% yield. The interesting aspect to this business, so it has two key aspects. One is uh, an investment portfolio managed by um, James Henderson and Laura Hall of Janice Henderson, um, who I'm sure people will be familiar with. And then it has um, actually an operating a trading business, uh, independent professional services business, which has uh, been going for over 100 years. And actually, the, the numbers coming from that business are very encouraging. It's seen revenues and earnings up 6.5% and 6.6% respectively during that six-month period. And that, that business is valued about 17% of, of net assets. But why is it important to shareholders in law debenture is because over the last five years or so, it's represented about a third of the investment trust's income. So it's, it's a key part of, of the dividend. And so I think that gives the board of that investment trust the confidence to make those kind of dividend predictions or dividend targets for 2020. The fact they've got this independent professional services business generating uh, revenue through this period. It sounds nicely dull. And uh, as you say, revenue generating to help bolster the dividend. Very good. I would imagine, therefore, with a 5% yield, that it's probably trading around par. Is, is that right? Well, you, you might have thought that, actually. But uh, no, is the short answer to that. I mean, it's not on a huge discount. It's probably on about a 6% discount or so at the moment. So a little bit wider than across the UK equity income peer group overall. You know, over the last 12 months, just to put that in perspective, it has been uh, a little bit wider, actually. We have seen the discount narrow on this one, and that probably reflects that when people are looking at more sustainable sources of yield, then I suspect many people would see this because of the um, the, the corporate trustee business better placed than some of its peers. The other thing I think that I suppose a, a casual investigator of the trust in the UK equity income sector, of which this is part, it does seem to have a very low kind of ongoing charge. In other words, it's relatively cheap to own. For some people, that's quite an important factor. Obviously, it's a complicated subject that whether actually paying a lower fee does actually uh, guarantee uh, better performance or whether it just you pay what you get for. Am I right about that? How do the uh, ongoing charges in that sector compare? As always, there's a, there's a range. And as a rule of thumb, the larger investment trusts in that sector, you'd expect to have lower ongoing charges. There are obviously economies of scale. And what tends to happen, the boards of these investment trusts who negotiate with their investment managers quite often now have introduced a tiering system. So above certain thresholds of assets, they pay a lower charge. So the larger investment trust, the kind of the lower the ongoing charge ratio. In the case of Law Debenture, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but I've got a feeling that they are paying Janice Henderson 30 basis points for their investment management services, which would seem to be uh, quite a, a keen price. Uh, but reflects that it's a decent size investment portfolio for, for James and Laura to, to run. In addition to that, there will be costs within the independent professional services business, but the numbers that come through to Lord Adventure will be the, the net, so they'll be after those costs. While we're on the UK equity income sector, we've talked about the number of things that are going on in this sector. It's been very active this year. And of course, the, uh, the big news in the sector this week involves a merger, something which we don't often see in the investment trust world. Uh, we might talk about why that is in a moment. But uh, first of all, give us the details about what this merger is, who are the two parties, and uh, what are they proposing to do? So Perpetual Income and Growth, back in April, announced that they would uh, be looking for a new investment manager. Uh, and this week, they announced not exactly that they found a new investment manager, but they were proposing, as you rightly say, a merger with Murray Income, so an existing 
uh, investment trusts. And this is a relatively rare development in the investment trust sector. We have seen one or two in recent years. So Dunedin Smaller Companies was merged into Standard Life UK Smaller Companies and Henderson Global Trust was merged into Henderson International Income. But in both those cases, they were stable mates. So they were run out of the same fund management group. So to actually uh, see a merger proposal on the back of effectively a beauty parade is a rare development. And it's something that people have been calling for across the sector for, for some time, this idea that there should be greater consolidation in the investment trust world, that there are actually probably too many uh, funds out there and actually they would benefit from being merged and therefore create uh, economies of scale. And certainly, assuming that shareholder approval is forthcoming, this would mean that Murray income uh, would grow and would uh, effectively become one of the four billionaires uh, in the UK equity income space. So they are those investment trusts with assets of uh, greater than a billion of which Finsbury Growth and Income, City of London Investment Trust and the Edinburgh Investment Trust are the three uh, present. So I think it was perhaps a deal that people were not necessarily expecting, uh, but it seems to have been well received. So effectively, therefore, this is going to continue under the name of Murray income. Is that right? Or is there going to be some neologism to reflect the fact that it's also uh, had a different uh, antecedent for part of the company? Or is it just going to trade as Murray Income? Do we know that yet? My understanding is it will trade as Murray Income. So uh, without going to too many of the technical details of it, effectively perpetual income and growth will go for an insolvency procedure and the assets as a 20% uh, return of cash option, uh, a 2% discount to FAV for those shareholders who wish it. And there will be a pre-liquidation Interim dividend of 13.6p to be paid out, which is equivalent to about a year or so. It's all the revenue reserves will be paid out, which is equivalent to about a year or so's dividend. And then the remaining assets will be rolled into Murray Income. And shareholders in perpetual income and growth will receive uh, shares in Murray Income on a FAV for FAV basis. So that's fair asset value, effectively. I'm afraid we can't avoid naming the, uh, the two management companies involved here. Can we just uh, say who effectively has lost out here and who has actually gained? Who are, who are the uh, investment management companies here who will be taking over the running of the combined portfolio? So Perpetual Income and Growth is managed by Invesco. And it was Mark Barnett who, who left Invesco earlier this year. Um, Murray Income has, has been run for a number of years by Charlie Luke or Charles Luke. Uh, and actually Ian Powell has worked alongside him since uh, the last few years. And actually... One of the reasons one suspects Murray Income have won this mandate is the fact that their performance record has been very strong for a number of years now. And they are one of the AIC dividend heroes. They have a, a record of 46 consecutive years of dividend increases. And, and certainly that the commentary around this deal, around this proposal from the chairman of Perpetual Income and Growth noted that. And I think the feeling was that they were well placed to keep that uh, record going. It is unusual, as you say. I mean, there are some cynical people out there who say that, you know, the board of directors of one company is never going to sort of voluntarily give up when they've got a job running an investment trust and put themselves out of business. What's actually happening at the board level? That's always interesting to see when these mergers happen. People avidly follow that, like kind of criminologists. But what's happening to the board composition or what's the proposal after this merger, assuming this merger does go through? So there are six non-executive directors on the board of Petrol Income and Growth. Three will move over initially to Murray Income. Uh, I think two were, were, were coming up for their nine years, which I think is the recommended period of time to serve on a board. And uh, one already uh, sits on another Aberdeen Standard Investments Board. So uh, there's a conflict of interest there. So three will move over, including the chairman. But I think the understanding is that there will be a handover period. And I think of those three, I think the chairman will stand down 
um, after a year or so. So there will be a handover period. But you're right. The, uh, you know, cynics have often noted that boards don't tend to like this as an option because it does them out of a, of a job. And uh, that's something that we've heard before. The other aspect, to be fair, is that I know a number of boards are always a bit wary of the costs involved in a merger because there is a kind of uh, legal process involved in this. It isn't uh, inexpensive. But um, we haven't seen actually the costs involved in this particular deal yet. I think the full details are still to come out. But as a rule of thumb, I think you're talking about um, half a percent or 50 basis points, I think feels to be on a, on a friendly merger was what you'd expect. And again, you know whether that's uh, a lot to pay for the, the synergies that a merger would um, lead to uh, remains to be seen. But it, obviously, it depends on, on size and everything. I think it's fair to say that when we have two companies, uh, you know, not investment trust, but uh, ordinary businesses, when they merge and the chairman always start talking about synergies and the CEOs are very keen to get synergies, those synergies often don't appear over time. They tend to be rather less dramatic than is claimed at the time. But I guess in the investment trust world, it is fair to say, I would suggest to you that there will be savings because if you're combining two uh, different portfolios into one, the costs of running them were going to be pretty much the same once those initial costs of doing the transaction are taken out of the equation. And you would therefore expect to see, when they talk about synergies, you would actually expect to see that happen, would you not? You're absolutely right. So we talked before about management fees, which is normally the largest element of the cost within an investment trust structure. In the case of Murray Income, they do have a tiered management fee. These additional assets will push them into a higher tier. So their pro forma management fee is actually point. 3.8%. So that would give them an ongoing charge of about half a percent. And they believe that that's certainly one of the more competitive charge levels in that UK equity income peer group. So you can see there that there would seem to be an advantage. And also the fact that you've got a larger vehicle that offers investors better liquidity in the secondary market as well is not unimportant. There's been a lot of commentary around how some of the smaller investment trusts look quite attractive, appear to be on wide discounts, but then when you, you try to invest in the, in the things, it, they can be quite difficult to build positions. So the fact that you're creating a, a billion pound company out of this should, should help liquidity in the secondary market. Yes, and I'm sure that Shells will be looking out for that, assuming that the merger proposal does go through. It's worth also emphasising the point that shareholders will get a vote on this, will they not? And they can choose whether to vote for or against these proposals before they can become unconditional. And then they have a chance to exit, as you said, as well. That is one of the strengths of the investment trust world. You, there is some meaning to the sense of shareholder ownership. On the other hand, as you said, you have to go through the whole performance of issuing uh, prospectuses, uh, which costs a lot of lawyers' time and so on. So there is a kind of quid pro quo, but there is at least this element that shareholders do get to get a vote when uh, two trusts combine in this way. That's very interesting. We look forward to seeing what's going to happen to Temple Bar and the sector overall in the next few weeks. Let's move on to talk about a couple of smaller UK investment trusts while we've got time. First, I'd like to mention is Artemis Alpha, which is, again, uh, quite a small trust. And they are in the middle of what they're hoping is effectively a relaunching of this trust about 18 months ago. Can you tell us what they've been doing and what their plan is and how are they doing against their new targets? So they had annual results out this week to the end of April. So uh, NAV total return was down about 11% or so in that period. And that compared with their benchmark, which was down 17%. So, you know, they, they certainly outperformed on that basis. As you say, they, they continue to move the portfolio on. They've reduced the number of holdings to um, just under 40. And the top 20 now represent about 86% of NAV. So quite a concentrated portfolio. 
Uh, interestingly enough, about 35% of the NAV is actually in online services such as food delivery and video games. And one suspects that re reflects the influence of Kartik Kumar, the, the, the manager who's been working on this uh, portfolio for the last few years, alongside John Dodd, who's obviously a veteran fund manager, but I suspect it's more to Kartik's influence on the online services. So they're, they're definitely moving the portfolio on. There are a few legacy positions, unquoted exposure um, has come down, but it's still about 8% or so of NAV. So the, the emphasis now is very much more in mid and large cap listed companies. Yeah, so as it happened, the manager, as you mentioned, uh, Kartik was uh, was one I interviewed for an earlier edition of the Investment Trust Handbook. And he's a young man and he's trying to make his name and they've given him this uh, opportunity to help develop Artemis Alpha, which was basically struggling before and had a number of structural issues to deal with. And they've given shareholders the opportunity to have a vote on how things are going, uh, maybe next year or the year after. I can't remember exactly when that is. But anyway, we want to follow with interest. Let's move on to another one, which again is a trust that's been very much associated with individuals, I have to say, and that's something called value and income. What can you tell us about value and income and uh, what have they been uh, saying? So value and income had its annual results up to the end of March, obviously a tough period. And just to bear in mind that this is a this is quite a different investment trust. So it's a hybrid portfolio. It's a mixture of uh, property and equity. And its NAV was down about 22% in that 12-month period to the end of March, compared with about uh, an 18 19% fall of the FTSE All Share. So certainly a tough period. And that's despite the fact the property portfolio produced a total return of just over 6%. So the, the dividends were at 12.1p in aggregate. They were actually up in 2.5%. And that represented a 33rd consecutive year of, uh, of increases. And they're, again, they're one of the AICs. Uh, dividend heroes. And again, they gave some guidance. They said the intention is to preserve this record uh, by use of capital reserves uh, if necessary. But it's it's that mixture of property and UK equities uh, that's quite unusual. But uh, not dissimilar to the situation of Artemis, um, there's going to be a continuation vote on this one. They've, they said this a number of years ago, but it's uh, in 2024. Uh, and they've said that by 2027, which seems a long way away, but in the investment trust world these days seem to come around quite quickly, they will provide shareholders with an exit at any of the less costs at uh, the very latest. So we, we might see some activity before then. And how is the market rate this one then? It's, a, it's a relatively small, but not, not insignificant, but uh, relatively small. How does it trade? Uh, on a wide discount is to answer your question. I'm probably on a discount about 30, 31% at the moment, uh, which in the UK equity income Peer group stands out. However, when you think that a third of the portfolio is in UK commercial property, that probably starts to make a bit more sense. And its discount, I would suggest, reflects that um, property exposure. It's not dissimilar to some of the discounts on some of the commercial property companies that we're seeing elsewhere. I think that's fair to say. Before we leave the UK sector, I, perhaps I should go back and just ask you, how has the market reacted to the Pidgeot Murray Income merger proposal. I mean, what's happened to the share prices of the two companies and what's happened to their discounts? Uh, I imagine it hasn't been met with entirely with indifference. Let's put it that way. No, I think that's absolutely right. So in the case of perpetual income and growth, the discount has uh, narrowed. It was trading out um, on mid-teens discount before the announcement was made. It's probably on about a 9% discount or so now. So still on a relatively wide discount. Uh, Murray Income, which has had the better rating of the two, so it's tended to trade at a relatively tight discount. Its discount probably widened out a little bit. Uh, it's averaged uh, between about 3 and 4% over the last 12 months, uh, and it's probably near to about a 5 5.5% 5 discount at the moment. 
So again, just as an observer, one would think that perhaps if the uh, proposal is accepted and then the shareholders uh, decide to complete the merger, at some point, if that's going to be done at uh, on an NAV basis, you might expect that the discount eventually might come in a little bit. The time value of money would come into play. Let's move on, though. Let's move on to a couple of smaller company investment trusts. Again, two uh, quite long-running uh, investment trusts. Let's start with the first one, which is Aberforth Smaller Companies, which has been uh, ploughing its very distinctive field, if you like, for, uh, I think, more than 20 years anyway. Tell us about them. I think it's nearly 30 now. But yes, Aberforth Smaller Companies, they had their interim results out for the six months to the end of June. Um, you know, tough time for this small cap focused uh, investment trust, not least because of their value style. Their NAV total return was down 36% in that six month period, and that compares with a fall of 25% for their benchmark. And in share price total return terms, it was actually even worse, it was down 39%. So, really tough period for Aberforth smaller companies. And, and funnily enough, they did attribute most of that uh, underperformance down to their, their value style, though they make the point. The valuations are seen as, as highly attractive at the moment and uh, to evidence that they deployed some gearing relatively modest. I think it was about according to two and a half percent at the end of June. But this is a, an investment trust that's rarely used gearing throughout its history. They've uh, tended to be uh, much more cautious. Another interesting aspect of the results is that their revenue fell 79 percent year on year to just about four and a half P. But actually they've increased their interim dividend to uh, just over 10 P. So that's quite a dramatic impact to their revenue. Uh, but they do have strong revenue reserves and, and equivalent to 2.4 times their ordinary dividends. So they have lots of scope, should they wish, to support their dividend through revenue reserves. Yes, I mean, I think it's fair to say they have been uh, exponents of you know, what we call value investing from the very beginning. That is their, how they set out their stall. And it is true, as we've commented on before, that value as a style has never done quite so badly compared to growth to which it's often compared as a style as it has done over the last 10 years and we're now at a fairly extreme position in terms of that relative performance of value against growth so that is worth i guess saying in their defense they're sticking to their guns that's what people expect them to do and they're not being diverted but they're paying a very hefty price in the short term as as i think you've described that is uh, those are quite dramatic numbers and so i imagine that they're selling on a discount of uh, certainly double digits i would imagine that's correct. I mean, I've got them on a discount of about 14% to NAV at the moment. And to put some comparison around that, they were they've averaged a 6% discount over the last 12 months. So they've certainly suffered a derating this year. Let's move on to Henderson's smaller companies. Another, I think, quite widely followed in the retail investor world, at least. Obviously run by Janice Henderson's these days. Was originally launched as a Henderson fund. What's been going on with there and the manager, who I should say, I should declare an interest. I actually have some shares in this uh, investment trust, so I should be paying particular attention to your comments. Sam. Well, they had their results out uh, and actually a decent set of results, all things considered. So their NAV total return was down uh, 8%, but that compared with a fall of 16% for their uh, benchmark, so relative outperformance. And uh, I think the point that they noted in the, the results, which is a point well made, that in the 17 years that Neil Herman, their, their investment manager, has been responsible for this fund that he's actually outperformed in 15 of them. So 15 out of 17 doesn't seem uh, a too bad a score to me. Their revenue per share was actually down, uh, down 29%, so not quite to the levels that we saw for the, the Aberfoyle Fund, but actually they've used revenue reserves to increase their dividend by 2.2%. Uh, and also they were geared, so at the end of May, at the end of the period, um, they were 11% geared, so a bit more 
gear than, than the Aberforth fund. But just to give you some idea of where they're trading at the moment, they've been derated too. A lot of the UK small cap names have to be fair. Uh, and they're trading on about a 14% discount at the moment. And over the last 12 months, they've averaged a 6% discount. So uh, UK small cap has definitely been a tough place to be so far this year. And that caused a decline in the revenue that you've talked about in both those cases. That is the result of UK companies themselves cutting their dividends in response either to uh, the current recession that the virus has caused or just to the short-term impact of the virus. Uh, So that's going to be a problem for them and indeed for other smaller company investment trusts. What can we say about their yield? I mean, is is this the kind of trust that you would own for its yield or not? Uh, And The yield at the moment is equivalent to about 3.2%, which is not unattractive. Though I think uh, the investment manager would argue that, you know, it's very much a total return story. So it's not just a yield play. Uh, I mean, over the long term, he's trying to generate attractive long term returns. And certainly over five years, the NAV total return is uh, up 27%. Uh, and that compares with the most widely used benchmark in the space of 5%. So significant outperformance over the last five years. I think we have to move on from the UK. Well, at least not entirely from the UK, but a different sector altogether. Let's take a quick look at what's happening in the renewables sector, where we've heard this week from one of the interesting companies in their sector, which is Greencoat UK Wind. I think the clue to what they do is in the name. Can you tell us how this uh, particular trust is doing and, and how the sector overall is doing, the renewables sector, renewable energy we're talking about here? So uh, Greencoat UK Wind had its half-year results out to the end of June this week. And the story continues to be pretty positive. So their NEV at the end of June was just slightly over 120p. But actually, uh, the yield is a very important part of this particular story. And they're in line to meet their dividend target of 7.1p for the full year. So they've, uh, so far, their aggregate dividend for the year is uh, half that, 3.55p. Uh, and the dividend cover for the period is 1.3 times. So in other words, it was covered and then some. And that's uh, forecast to be maintained for the full year. So on the revenue generating side, uh, it was a positive story. The NAV was down slightly over the six-month period. So um, it fell about 1.5p to um, 118.3p after the dividend uh, was stripped out. Uh, And basically, that reflected lower power prices, uh, which has been a headwind for a lot of these renewable energy infrastructure plays. But actually, it was partially offset by the reduction in the discount rates that they use to value the portfolio. They reduced those discount rates from 7.5% to 7.2%. But uh, they made the point that the power generation, um, and just to be very clear, this is, these are obviously wind farms that they're investing in, but 95% of them are not only in the UK, but they're onshore uh, wind farms. So I'm sure many people will have seen them as they've driven around the country. Uh, and the generation for that six month period, the power generation was 2% uh, above budget. Uh, so these are geared vehicles. Uh, the gearing at the end of June was equivalent to about 26% of gross asset value. Um, but that's you know one of the reasons why they can offer a yield. And the yield at the moment on a historic basis uh, is just a little bit under 5% at 48 So that would suggest that the shares of trading at a premium still. They, many of the trusts in this particular sector, which have become to become a staple for those looking for more reliable sources of income and a decent, more respectable yield. That suggests they are trading on a premium, as many of these renewable trusts have done. I mean, the thing that quite surprised me over this one is quite how large it's become. It's become quite a significant uh, investment trust in terms of assets. Do you have a figure for that? And can you say how that and how they're, the way they trade, how does that compare? Am I right about the premiums and so on? How does that compare across the sector as a whole, which is now getting quite large? It's got about 10 names in it, I think, has it not? 
it, we had seen incredible growth. And, and to be fair, Greencoat UK Wind was the trailblazer. It was the, it was the first one launched of this type back in uh, only 2013, not that many years ago. Off the top of my head, I think they raised about 150, 160, 170 million pounds, something of that order. Uh, initially, uh, it's now the portfolio. So actually how much money they've invested in the ground is probably about 2.4 billion, which is actually quite staggering really in seven years to build up that kind of portfolio of onshore UK wind assets. And obviously they've been back to the market a number of times and raised additional capital to help fund uh, that portfolio as they've built it out. But trading very, very well um, on a premium rating of just over 20% to their NAV. And that's not uncommon in the renewable energy infrastructure subsector. Probably the average uh, premium rating is probably in the mid-teens, 14, 15, 16%. So Greencoat UK Wind would be one of the higher rated, but they're all on premiums pretty much. The other interesting thing I noted about their announcement was that, like as we always keep saying about the alternative assets, you need to look a little bit under the bonnet to see what they're actually doing and whether their strategy is changing subtly or not. Uh, there's no shortage of wind in the UK, but... Uh, there may be a shortage of opportunities to invest in UK wind. And if they continue to grow, they're going to have to find other ways perhaps to invest their money. But I have noticed that unlike some of the other companies in this thing, they have said, or at least they said this time, that they weren't going to break the link with inflation. You know, one of the great selling points of these trusts was not just that they had relatively high yields, but they were promising dividends that would rise in line with inflation, which of course would be like gold dust in the current environment. They have not withdrawn that guidance, unlike some others, so do you think that will continue to be a selling point for them? It's clearly an attractive element of their, of their proposition. But as you correctly note, the direction of travel across this particular peer group is to break that link. Most of them or many of them at launch offer that. And actually, as, as time has gone on, they found it increasingly difficult to, to maintain. So this week, just for a bit of light relief, we're not going to go further into the property sector. We've given a lot of updates about what's happening there. We're going to move past them this week. And I'd like to move on and just uh, wrap up a couple of things that are left over from previous weeks. First of all, we have the outcome of the Gabelli Value Plus Plus showdown, as I like to call it, between the uh, those in favour of a continuation vote and those against a continuation vote. I think the result is in from the OK Corral, and uh, perhaps you can tell us what it is. Well, the result is in, and only 34% of those shares voted were actually in favour of continuation. So if you remember, this was one where the board was actually recommending that shareholders vote against continuation and a number of the leading shareholders had come out and made it clear that that was their intention too. The dissenter was an outfit called Associated Capital Group, which had links to the investment manager. Uh, and by looking at the, the numbers of shares voted, it would appear that they and maybe one or two others voted against, but very, very high turnout on this particular vote. 93% of the share capital was voted uh, in this instance, which is... Um, by normal standards, very, very high. So now the ball is in the board's court. They will put forward plans to wind this investment trust, investment company up, uh, and they put their uh, manager on 24 months protective notice. So just explain what that means, would you, Simon? What does protective notice mean? Does it mean it's going to take two years to, to wind this thing up? Is that basically what it means? Not necessarily. I mean, the manager is entitled to two years management fees, I think is probably the more likely case. So there's a, there's a conversation to, to be had there. But I mean, the fact that Gabelli is trading out on a slightly wider than 5% discount, despite the thing it's going to be wound up, probably suggests that the share price reflects that there will be some costs involved in liquidating this portfolio. Far be it from me to suggest that that might be why they wanted to vote in continuation. But it's very unusual, as you say, for a board to indicate a, a vote one way and for other shareholders to go against them. It has happened, of course. So that's going to be the end of them, I'm afraid. We'll see no more of them. 
Gabelli, Marco Gabelli is a well-known American investor who uh, who raised this money over here. Uh, there's another American investor, though, which is our final item this week, who has been in the news this week. Uh, and he's doing something which is quite interesting. If you're at all interested in the hedge fund world, you may have heard about a gentleman called Bill Ackman, who's had a lot of well-publicized uh, successes and indeed failures over the last few years, but he's still very much in business. He runs something called Pershing Square, which is listed in the UK. Uh, and he's done something. Pershing Square have come out with some proposals which are quite unusual. I'm not sure that many UK shareholders have a, a big position in Pershing Square. But why don't you tell us what Mr. Ackman is proposing and, and what it actually means for the Pershing Square Investment Trust? So as you say, Bill Ackman, a US activist investor, uh, this week launched a new vehicle on the US stock market uh, called Pershing Square, Tontine Holdings, raising $4 billion. Uh, and the idea is that this vehicle will take a minority position in an existing uh, private company. So uh, I think in his own words, he's looking for mature unicorns and offering them the opportunity to effectively list themselves by using this particular vehicle. Now, why is this of interest to shareholders in Pershing Square Holdings, which, as you say, is the UK-listed uh, vehicle that he's responsible for, it's because Pershing Square Holdings has warrants in this new vehicle that potentially, potentially would provide it with upside if the investment proves to be a success. But Pershing Square Holdings is an interesting investment uh, in its own right. Its NAV is up uh, over 40% so far this year to date. Uh, they did incredibly well in that difficult period back in March by shorting the market a position which they exited on a timely basis and, and redeployed the proceeds back into the market at, at pretty low prices. So it has been uh, an investment company that has had its ups and downs, as you say, well-publicized troubles, uh, and that probably explains its discount of 30, 32% at the moment, despite the fact it has a market cap of 3.7 billion, so not too far off going in the FTSE 100. So it is a, a very interesting situation. Perhaps we could just explain a couple of terms. You talked about unicorns, some mature unicorns. We know that unicorns in uh, don't really exist, but uh, unicorns are a term to describe uh, a particular kind of unlisted company. So perhaps you might explain that and what a mature unicorn is as opposed to a immature unicorn. <laughs> and then secondly, you mentioned warrants. How do warrants actually work? Why, why is that of interest to the shareholders in Pershing Square? How would a warrant work? How would it put, make money for them? So uh, on the unicorns, a mature unicorns. So uh, unicorns are, are normally taken to mean those private companies, so unlisted companies that have uh, an enterprise value, so a value of a billion dollars or more. Uh, we obviously we've seen a number in the tech space, uh, and in fact, indeed, uh, our friends at Bailey Gifford Scottish Mortgage Trust owns uh, a number of unicorns in its portfolio. So I think the idea, the point that Bill Ackman's making with mature unicorns is those companies that have been around for some time, and he, he has given some examples of those well-known companies, but just happen to be private at the moment. Uh, in terms of the warrants, well, they really give potential upside on the basis that they will convert into uh, ordinary shares if and when the share price of the Tontine investment vehicle goes above a certain level. So there is a possibility uh, that those warrants expire worthless, though equally, if the Tontine investment vehicle, which eventually will, one would assume will be deployed in this private company, if it were to see a significant rise in its share price, then they could be uh, worth a considerable amount of money. So that's the upside. That's the, the interesting aspect for investors in Pershing Square. But clearly, we don't even know as yet where this uh, cash is likely to be deployed or w which company uh, they're likely to do a deal with. So a few hurdles to be got over first. 
So a warrant is essentially a little bit like a sort of option, if you like. Is that right? I mean, it basically gives you the right to buy shares in this vehicle at a, at a predetermined price. So if the value of that vehicle is higher than what we call the strike price of the warrant, then you'll win the money. If it never gets to that strike price, you don't make any money, but you also you haven't actually paid anything for the right to do that. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. OK, so Simon, I think that's it for this week. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground, of course, and we're going to be here next week to talk about what any more results that come out next week. But after that, we will be doing a couple of uh, special podcasts and we are both going to be away for uh, a week or two. Thank you very much for those who've signed up to listen to this podcast. We will be keeping informed of what will be coming up over the next uh, few weeks. So thank you, Simon. And we look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.